I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Welcome. I want to say a word or two about our speaker's book. Something I've come to admire and even require and stuff that I'm going to spend a whole bunch of time reading or even listening to is density. I want a lot of insight, a lot of news, a lot of meat per paragraph in a book. And that's relatively uncommon. But uh, this is uh, about a third of the way through Enlightenment now. You can see I've dog-eared just about every page. <laughs> and that's because the density of insight and originality and serious news is that thick in this book. And what we'll hear tonight is not the book. The book has a whole lot more than what Steve can say in the course of an hour in a half hour conversation. So let me introduce the speaker to the introduction to Enlightenment Now. Stephen Pinker. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you so much. What an honor it is to be speaking at the Long Now and to be introduced by Stuart Brand. From time to time, we all ask some deep and difficult questions. Why is the world filled with woe? How can we make it better? How do we give meaning and purpose to our lives? Well, as imponderable as these questions may seem, there are some people with confident answers to them. <laughs> For example, Morality is dictated by God in holy scriptures. When everybody obeys his laws, the world will be perfect. For example, problems are the fault of evil people who must be shamed, punished, and defeated. Our tribe should claim its rightful greatness under the control of a strong leader who embodies its authentic virtue. In the past, we lived in a state of order and harmony until alien forces brought on decadence and degeneration, we must restore the society to its golden age. Well, what about the rest of us? Uh, many people know what they don't believe in, uh, but what, what do we believe in? In Enlightenment Now, I suggest that there is an alternative system of beliefs and values, the one that we associate with the 18th century Enlightenment. In a nutshell, that we can use knowledge to enhance human flourishing. Many people embrace the ideals of the Enlightenment without being able to name or describe them. As a result, they faded into the background as a, a bland status quo or the, the establishment. Other ideolo ideologies have passionate advocates, and I suggest that Enlightenment ideals too need a positive defense and an explicit commitment. And that's what I've tried to do in Enlightenment now. Enlightenment ideals, I suggest, revolve around four themes, reason, science, humanism, and progress. Let me say a few words about each. It all begins with reason and with the understanding that traditional sources of belief are generators of delusion, faith, revelation, tradition, 
authority, charisma, mysticism, intuition, the parsing of sacred texts are all ways of being wrong. Uh, reason, in contrast, is non-negotiable. As soon as you try to provide reasons why we should trust anything other than reason, as soon as you insist that you are right, that other people should believe you, that you're not lying or full of crap, you've lost the argument because you have appealed to reason. Human beings on their own are not particularly reasonable. Uh, cognitive scientists have shown that we are liable to generalize from anecdotes, to reason from stereotypes, we seek evidence that confirms our beliefs, and we ignore evidence that disconfirms them, and we're overconfident about our knowledge, our wisdom, and our rectitude. But people are capable of reason if they adopt certain norms. Free speech, open criticism and debate, logical analysis, fact-checking, and empirical testing, which brings me to the second Enlightenment ideal, science. Science is based on the conviction that the world is intelligible, and that we can understand it by formulating possible explanations and testing them against reality. Science has shown itself to be our most reliable means of understanding the world, including ourselves. An important Enlightenment theme was that there can be a science of human nature, and that beliefs about society are testable, just like any other beliefs about the world. Science, moreover, provides not just technical know-how, but fundamental insights about the human condition. Naturalism. The laws of the universe have no goal or purpose related to human welfare, which means that if we want to improve that welfare, we have to figure out how to do it ourselves. Entropy. In a closed system without input of energy, disorder increases. Things fall apart, stuff happens. And that's because there are vastly more ways for things to go wrong than to go right. Evolution. Humans are products of a competitive process which selects for reproductive success, not for well-being. As Immanuel Kant put it, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no truly straight thing can be built. <laughs> the third Enlightenment va value is humanism, that the ultimate moral purpose is to reduce the suffering and enhance the flourishing of human beings and other sentient creatures. Well, human flourishing, who could be uh, against that? Well, in fact, there are alternatives to humanism. It is by no means a trite or banal moral commitment. For example, there, uh, among the alternatives are that the ultimate good is to enhance the glory of the tribe, the nation, the race, the class, or the faith, to obey the dictates of a divinity and pressure others to do the same, to achieve feats of our artistic or martial or heroic greatness, to advance a mystical force, a dialectic, or struggle, or pursuit of a utopian or messianic age. Humanism is feasible because people are endowed with a sense of sympathy, an ability to show concern for the welfare of others, another uh, recurring Enlightenment theme. Now, by default, our circle of sympathy is rather small. We tend to feel the pain only of our genetic relatives, our friends, our allies, cute little furry baby animals, and that, that's about it. But our, our circle of sympathy can be expanded through forces of cosmopolitanism, the mixing of ideas and people, such as education, journalism, mobility, art, uh, and reason. As soon as I enter into a conversation with you, I can't uh, insist that my interests are special just because I'm me and, and uh, you're not, and hope for you to take me seriously. 
Finally, um, this leads to the Enlightenment ideal of progress, that if we apply knowledge and sympathy to reduce suffering and enhance flourishing, we can gradually succeed. Well, you may ask, if human nature doesn't change, how could progress even be possible? And an answer from the Enlightenment is through benign institutions that allow us to deploy energy and knowledge to combat entropy, that magnify the better angels of our nature, like reason and sympathy, while marginalizing our inner demons, our biases, our illusions, our tribalism, our thirst for dominance and vengeance. Examples of uh, institutions that were brain children of the Enlightenment that we continue to enjoy are democracy, declarations of rights, markets, organizations for global cooperation, and institutions of truth-seeking, academies, scientific societies, uh, free press, lecture series, and others. <laughs> so, 250 years later, how did that Enlightenment thing work out? Well, if you ask most intellectuals, the answer is not very well, because I have found that intellectuals hate progress. <laughs> and intellectuals who call themselves progressive really hate progress. <laughs> It's, it's not that they hate the fruits of progress, mind you. Most uh, members of the clerisy would still rather have their surgery with anesthesia rather than without it. Uh, it's the idea of progress that rankles the chattering class. If you think we can solve problems, I have been told, that means you have a blind faith and a quasi-religious belief in the outmoded superstition of the false promise of the myth of the onward march of inevitable progress. You are a cheerleader for vulgar American can-do-ism with the rah-rah spirit of boardroom ideology, Silicon Valley, and the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> you are a practitioner of Whig history, a naive optimist, a Pollyanna, and of course a Pangloss, alluding to the Voltaire character who declared all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Well, Pangloss, as it turns out, was a pessimist. A true optimist believes there can be much better worlds than the ones we have today. But this is all irrelevant because the question of whether there has been progress is not a matter of seeing the world through rose-colored glasses or having a sunny disposition or seeing the glass as half full. It's an empirical hypothesis. Human well-being can be measured. Life, health, sustenance, prosperity, peace, freedom, safety, knowledge, leisure. If they have increased over time, I submit that is progress. So let's look at the data. Beginning with life, the most uh, precious resource of all. For most of human history, life expectancy at birth hovered around 30 years of age. But then with the uh, discovery of vaccination, sanitation, antibiotics, and other advances in public health and medicine, life expectancy across the world has increased so that today it is 71 years. And virtually no one guesses that it's that high. As with many examples of human progress, the development has been highly uneven across the regions of the world. Europe was the first region to escape uh, early death, followed by the Americas, uh, in the 20th century, uh, Asia ha has shown spectacular increases, and most recently, Africa has begin begun to close the, uh, the gap. Uh, the life expectancy in Europe is gr greater than 80 years, uh, at, but in all regions of the world, life expectancy at birth is increasing. Uh, indeed, in Kenya, life expectancy at 
uh, has increased by 10 years in the last 10 years, which means that uh, a, for a Kenyan citizen, uh, every year he would get a year older but not approach death uh, at all. Uh, child mortality. In, for most of human history, the greatest um, reducer of life expectancy was um, death in fragile children. Even in Sweden, which we, today we think of as the, the world's most, uh, one of the world's most advanced countries, in 1750, one-third of Swedish children did not make it to their fifth birthday. Um, that was reduced to a third of a percentage point. That is a hundredfold decrease. Uh, Again, other regions of the world got a later start, but followed the same trajectory. Here we have uh, Canada in North America, South Korea in Asia, uh, Chile in Latin America, and Ethiopia in Sub-Saharan Africa, which has reduced its rate of child mortality from 25% uh, 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 to 6%. Still too high, but the progress is uh, continuing. In the 18th century, 1% of Swedish women died in childbirth. That has been brought down by a factor of 250 to uh, 0.004%. And a similar progress was then experienced in the United States, in Malaysia, and uh, here we have Ethiopia. Health. For the greatest proximate cause of death for most of human history was infectious disease. That is uh, largely eliminated as a cause of death in the developed world. In the developing world, it is still a major killer, but tremendous progress has been made there. Uh, just in the last 20 years, the rate of childhood deaths from the five most deadly infectious diseases has all been in decline, pneumonia, diarrhea, malaria, measles, and HIV AIDS. Sustenance, uh, it takes about 2,500 calories to sustain a, um, uh, an active adult male on average. And it was only with the British agricultural revolution in the second half of the 18th century that uh, the first country was able to exceed that measure, thanks to uh, advances in agronomy like crop rotation, later to the invention of synthetic fertilizers, the mechanization of agriculture, the selective breeding of vigorous hybrids and networks of transportation, every region of the world um, has um, developed the ability to feed itself. Um, here you have the graph for the world as a whole. Now, this would be a dubious form of progress if all those extra calories were just making fat people fatter. But in fact, they have um, greatly reduced the rate of undernourishment. In 1970, about 35% of the developing world was undernourished. That has been uh, cut down to less than 15%. Uh, again, the spread of that uh, progress has been uneven. Latin America was the first region in the developing world to uh, decimate undernourishment. Here you have three regions in uh, Asia, and here is progress in sub-Saharan Africa. Also, thanks to the availability of calories. Famine, which was one of the horsemen of the apocalypse, which could strike any continent and uh, cause uh, sudden devastation, has been reduced, and famines today are found uh, mainly in war-torn and uh, remote regions. Prosperity. For most of human history, there was little to no economic uh, growth. Uh, this graph shows the gross world product from the year one to the year 2015. And as you can see, not much happened until the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. And there's been a 200-fold uh, increase in 
gross world product since the early 18th century. Again, there, the uh, progress has been highly uneven. Uh, the UK was the first country to make the, what Angus Deaton calls the great escape from universal wretchedness and uh, poverty. The United States quickly uh, exceeded it. Here we have South Korea and Asia, uh, Chile, and uh, China and India are now uh, showing exponential growth. Uh, the, gross, the GDP per capita in India today is about what uh, Sweden had in 1920. Uh, once again, this would be a dubious example of progress if all of the gains went to the 1% richest, but in fact, they have uh, drastically brought down the rate of extreme poverty, uh, $1.90 per person per day in $2,015, the bare minimum necessary to feed one's family. By that definition, about 90% of the world's population was extreme, extremely poor 200 years ago. That has been brought down to less than 10%. Uh, and um, there's been a 75% reduction in the rate of extreme poverty just since uh, 1999. Uh, because poor countries are getting richer faster than rich countries are getting richer, the, rate, the index of international inequality, that is inequality between countries, has started to decrease. It necessarily increased uh, during the Industrial Revolution, when uh, some countries broke away from the pack of uh, universal poverty, uh, but now, more recently, the uh, tide has begun to turn. Now, within rich countries, of course, inequality has increased, but that does not mean that developed countries have turned their backs on the poor in recent years. Quite the contrary. For hundreds of years, no European uh, or developed country uh, spent more than 1.5% of its GDP on um, redistrib redistribution to the poor, the aged, children, the sick. But in the course of the 20th century, every developed country embarked on a massive program of redistribution so that today the median among OECD countries in social transfers is 22%. Thanks largely to these transfers, the rate of poverty in the United States has decreased, even as inequality has increased. In 1960, the poverty rate, when it's calculated as disposable income, that is after taxes and transfers, was uh, 32%. That has fallen to 7%. And when poverty is measured in terms of consumption, what people can afford to buy, it's gone from 30% to less than 3%. Peace. For most of human history, war was the natural state of relations between uh, countries, and peace was a mere interlude between wars. You can see this in this graph, which plots the percentage of years that the great powers of the day, the 800-pound guerrillas, the empires and states that could project military force beyond their borders, were at war with each other. In the uh, 1500s and 1600s, the great powers were pretty much always at war. Uh, today, they are virtually never at war. The last great power war pitted the United States against China uh, 65 years ago. If we zoom in on the 20th century, then, of course, uh, two of the wars that did occur were uh, horrific bloodbaths. But thanks to, uh, after the Second World War, thanks to uh, expanding economies, uh, denser commercial relations between countries, uh, and uh, norms against conquest and uh, the changing of borders by force, the uh, rate of death in wars of all kinds has uh, skittered downwards. Uh, there were uh, peaks for the Korean War, 
the Vietnam War, the Iran-Iraq War, and most recently the Syrian Civil War. But the rate has come down from 22 per 100,000 per year in the late 40s and early 50s to about nine during the Vietnam era to about five during the Iran-Iraq War to uh, 1.2 today. Freedom and rights. There has been recently a conspicuous backsliding in uh, democracy in countries like uh, Russia and Turkey and uh, Venezuela. But still, uh, the overall trend in uh, governance has been towards democracy, as this graph showing the relative democracy versus autocracy score across the world uh, shows. That even with the backsliding in democracy, uh, of recent years, the world has never been more democratic than it has been in this decade. And lest that st strike you as uh, incredible, uh, keep in mind that in 200 years ago, the number of democracies in the world could be counted on one hand and embraced 1% of the world's population. As recently as the early 1970s, the world only had 31 democracies. Half of Europe was behind the Iron Curtain and under the control of uh, communist totalitarian dictatorships. Spain and Portugal were literally fascist dictatorships. Greece was under the control of the uh, colonels, a military junta. Almost all of Latin America was under the control of military governments. Um, Taiwan, South Korea, Indonesia, all military governments, all, and all of them today are democracies. There were about 52 democracies, uh, sorry, about uh, yeah, 52 democracies in um, 1989. 87 in 2009, the first year of the Obama presidency, when by the time Obama left office, there were 103 democracies in the world, comprising 56% of the world's population. Also, the uh, power of governments to brutalize their citizens is uh, being curtailed. Capital punishment used to be pretty much ubiquitous across countries, and it was applied to trivial misdemeanors like um, uh, shoplifting and poaching, often in grisly tor public torture executions like disembowelment uh, and uh, burning at the stake. But beginning with the Enlightenment and swelling to a flood in the 20th century, country after country has abolished the death penalty. If current trends continue, the uh, death penalty will vanish from the earth by 2026. Also, more and more countries have decriminalized homosexuality. Again, there has been backsliding in Russia and several African countries, but overwhelmingly the trend is towards decriminalization. Child labor. In 1850, 30% of English children were sent to work on, in farms and factories. With uh, the growth of affluence, a premium that modern economies put on education, and in general, a valuation of the lives of children, the rate of child labor has uh, plunged in England and the United States, uh, even more dramatically in Italy, and it's come down in the world as a whole, uh, an accomplishment for which Kailash Satyarthi won the Nobel Peace Prize three years ago. Violent crime. Pretty much any region of the world in uh, a state of anarchy suffers from high rates of interpersonal violence. Records for homicide go back in Europe some uh, almost 800 years. And in 1300, in Western European countries had a homicide rate of about 33 per, uh, 35 per 100,000 per year. With the consolidation of centralized states and kingdoms across the medieval patchwork of uh, baronies and fiefs, the rate of homicide came down in England and uh, the Netherlands from 35 to 1. 
a similar reduction in Italy, and pretty much any part of the world in which frontier regions come under the control of the rule of law uh, will see a transition from uh, high rates of uh, violence to relatively low ones. As the uh, code of uh, vendetta and a culture of honor is replaced by a court system and the rule of law. It happened in, later in uh, colonial New England. Uh, it happened in the American Wild West when the, uh, when the sheriffs came to town. And even countries that remain notorious for their high rates of violence, such as Mexico, have seen a five-fold decline of violence from what it was uh, 70 or 80 years ago. If we zoom in on the last 50 years, we see that the United States, which, as with many measures of human flourishing, is something of a, an outlier among Western democracies. We, we, we punch below our wealth in measures of human well-being. And in the in, in United States and in other Western countries, there was something of a crime boom in the 1960s. But starting in 1992, the United States brought its rate of homicide down uh, by more than half. Um, and the world as a whole has reduced its homicide rate by about 30% just in the last 20 years. Uh, there is a uh, plan from the University of Cambridge of how the world could reduce its homicide rate by 50% in the next 30 years, and that's uh, quite a feasible goal. Other kinds of violent crime have also been in decline. The uh, domestic violence, which is violence against wives and girlfriends, rape and sexual assault are down 75% since the uh, records were first kept in the 1970s. Children are safer. They're safer from violent victimization at school, including bullying, and safer from physical abuse and sexual abuse by caregivers. In fact, we've been getting safer in just about every way. Thanks to advances in uh, safety technology in cars like seat belts and airbags, thanks to the design of better highways and more consistent enforcement of traffic laws, uh, the chance of, be, of uh, being killed in a car accident has fallen by 96% in the last century. We are 88% less likely to be mowed down on the sidewalk, 99% less likely to die in a plane crash, 59% less likely to fall to our deaths, 90% less likely to drown, 92% less likely to die by fire. Fire departments, by the way, are putting themselves out of business. 92% uh, less likely to be asphyxiated. However, there is one category of uh, accidental death that uh, has gone the other way. That is the category called poison by solid or liquid. And here you see the, uh, the results of the American opioid epidemic. At the same time, we're 95% less likely to be killed on the job. Uh, and what about the acts of God? The uh, droughts, floods, wildfires, storms, volcanoes, landslides, meteor strikes, earthquakes. Um, thanks to more resilient infrastructure, better early warning systems, and better emergency responses, we're 96% less likely to, be, to die uh, in an act of God. Presumably not because God has become more merciful. Um, <laughs> indeed, think about the quintessential act of God. The, everyone's favorite metaphor for an unpredictable date with death, the literal bolt from the blue. <laughs> yes, we are 97% less likely to be killed by a bolt of lightning. <laughs> Knowledge. We are naturally illiterate, and even in early modern Europe, no more than 15% of uh, the pop population could read or, and write. European countries achieved universal literacy by the mid-20th century. 
Um, Germany a little bit later. Here you see Italy, the United States, uh, Chile, and Mexico. Here you have the trajectory for the world as a whole, showing that today, 80% of the world can read or write, and 90% of the world under the age of 25. Uh, not just boys, but girls. Um, in 1750, only um, six girls could read or write for every 10 boys, and that uh, gender parity was achieved in the late 19th century. Uh, the world as a whole is very close to gender parity in literacy. Even the most backward parts of the world, uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, have shown um, dramatic increases. Uh, for which we can thank the other winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2015, Malala Yousafzai. And in perhaps the most incredible example of progress uh, of all, the one that de defies belief, that people, their jaws drop, we have been getting smarter. This is true. Uh, in a well-documented effect known as the Flynn effect, IQ scores all over the world have increased by three points per decade for uh, a century, uh, a gift of the spread of education, but also of the trickling down of abstract concepts and visual symbols from technical domains like uh, science and technology to everyday experience. Well, have these gains uh, improved our quality of life. Uh, in many ways, they have. In 1870, uh, the typical work week in the United States and Western Europe was greater than 62 years. That has fallen by 22 hours, 62 hours per week, that is. That's fallen by 22 hours a week. And in addition, most American workers get three weeks of paid vacation. Thanks to the universal penetration of running water and electricity, and to the adoption of what used to be called labor-saving devices, like washing machines, vacuum cleaners, refrigerators, dishwashers, stoves, and microwaves, uh, the amount of our life that we lose to housework has fallen from uh, 62 hours a week to less than 15 hours a week. That is from about eight hours a day to two hours a day. And when I say we, uh, I really should say women, because housework is highly gendered. Um, given that housework is the activity that people rate as the least favorite way to spend their time, uh, this itself is an enormous gain in quality of life. Thanks to shorter work weeks and uh, less time lost to housework, leisure time has increased by about eight hours a week, um, just since 1965. The uh, gain for women started to level off around 1995, and uh, I was puzzled by this graph and read the, the fine print in the tables. And the reason uh, for the leveling off is that women are spending more time with their children. So a Single working mother today spends more time with her children than a married stay-at-home mom did in the 1950s. So forget the stereotypes from Leave it to Beaver. Now is the time when women are spending more time with their children. We also forfeit less of our paycheck to necessities from 60% a century ago to less than a third today. Has it made us any happier? Uh, it's often said that money can't buy happiness, but that's not exactly true. Uh, if you look at a graph uh, of self-rated life satisfaction as a function of uh, GDP per capita, on a logarithmic scale, you see there's actually a pretty strong relationship, both within, uh, across countries, as indicated by the um, 
scatter plot of points and within countries as indicated by the arrows impaling each point. Uh, again, it's a logarithmic scale, which means the relationship starts to uh, bend over when you get to higher income levels. But what this graph uh, suggests is that as countries get richer, as all countries are doing, their citizens are uh, likely to get happier. And indeed, the World Values Survey has found that in 45 of the 52 countries they have tracked, 86%, happiness has increased over the last 40 years. Has it come at the expense of the environment? And the answer is, uh, it surely has, although that is starting to turn around. According to a report card given to countries called the Environmental Performance Index, 178 out of 180 countries have shown improvements in environmental quality over the last few decades. I'll just show you a snapshot of what's happened in the United States. Uh, since 1970, thanks to the, the year of the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency, thanks to legislation that regulates pollution and to pollution control technology, while the American population has increased by 40%, GDP has increased by a factor of two and a half, we've driven twice as many miles, but the five major air pollutants have been reduced by 60%. So the idea that is um, conventional wisdom, both on the extreme libertarian right and on the extreme green left, that we have to choose between economic growth and environmental protection, uh, uh, turns out to be false. Uh, deforestation in temperate regions of the world has fallen to zero, as forests are no longer cleared for farms, and abandoned farms are, in fact, uh, being recolonized by temperate forests. The situation is um, not as uh, rosy in, uh, when it comes to tropical forests, where there is still uh, alarming deforestation, but the tide has turned and the peak for deforestation was uh, more than 40 years ago, and it, it has uh, come down. Since 1970, the world has shipped twice as much oil by sea, but has had 85% fewer oil spills. And the amount of the Earth's surface that's protected against economic exploitation has doubled from 8% to 15%, while the uh, amount of the uh, world's oceans that are protected has also doubled from 6% to 12%. Well, I hope to have convinced you that, that, that uh, progress is not a matter of having a uh, sunny disposition, but is an empirical fact. Um, and how is the fact of human progress reflected in the news? Well, I'm going to show you a graph that uses uh, the technique of um, sentiment mapping that tallies the number of positive versus negative words in a sample of um, news stories uh, going back to 1945 when it comes to the New York Times. Um, during this era of increasing peace, prosperity, and happiness, the New York Times has gotten glummer and glummer. And that is true of a summary of the world's uh, broadcasts as well, which has become increasingly morose. So why do people deny progress? Part of the answer comes from cognitive psychology. Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman have shown that the human brain tends to estimate risk and probability via a uh, shortcut they call the availability heuristic. Namely, um, the more easily we can recall examples from memory, the more uh, common we think an event is. Uh, for people, for example, think that tornadoes kill more people every year than asthma attacks, whereas it's drastically the other way around, presumably because uh, tornadoes make for great television and asthma attacks not so much. 
Indeed, if you combine the availability heuristic with the nature of news, uh, recalling that news is about stuff that happens, uh, not stuff that doesn't happen, you never see a journalist saying, uh, uh, here I am reporting live from a country that is not at war, or a uh, city that has not been uh, attacked by terrorists. Um, also, news is um, about sudden events, not gradual changes. As the economist Max Roser points out, the uh, news could have reported, had run the headline, 138,000 people escaped from extreme poverty yesterday, every day for the last 25 years. Uh, but they never ran that headline. Uh, leading to the uh, story in the hypothetical story in The Onion, CNN holds morning meeting, meeting to decide what viewers should panic about for the rest of the day. Um, you combine the availability heuristic with uh, the nature of the news, and you get the impression that the world is getting more dangerous, and always has been. There's another feature of our psychology that predisposes us to pessimism about the world, called the negativity bias, that bad is stronger than good. We dread losses more than we uh, anticipate gains. We dwell more on uh, what can go wrong than what can go right. Um, especially recent uh, bad events, bad events that uh, in distant memory tend to lose their negative coloring. Explaining an observation by Franklin Pierce Adams that nothing is more responsible for the good old days than a bad memory. <laughs> the negativity bias also opens up a market for um, doomsayers and prophets to remind us of hazards we may have overlooked. Um, as a result, uh, pessimism often sounds serious. Uh, optimism sounds frivolous. As Morgan Housel, a financial writer, pointed out, pessimists sound like they're trying to help you. Optimists sound like they're trying to sell you something. <laughs> There's also uh, a status competition among elites. Uh, society is uh, divided into different professional guilds and clubs with differing responsibilities for making the society run. To complain about modern society is a backhanded way of putting down your professional rivals. It's a way for academics to look down on business people, for business people to look down on politicians, for political challengers to look down on incumbents, and so on. This uh, has been going on for quite some time, as Thomas Hobbes said in the, in the 17th century. Competition of praise inclineth to a reverence of antiquity, for men contend with the living, not with the dead. <laughs> Let me end with three questions about progress uh, and enlightenment. You might think, isn't it good to be pessimistic, to uh, afflict the comfortable, to rake the muck, to speak truth to power? Well, not exactly. It's good to be accurate. Of course, we must be aware of problems and suffering and injustice where they occur, but it's also important to be aware of how they can be reduced. Um, there are dangers to thoughtless pessimism, such as fatalism. Uh, why throw uh, good money after bad. Why throw money down a rat hole? The poor will always be with you. Why waste time and money on a hopeless cause? Indeed, if we are uh, doomed, as many prophets uh, remind us, then we should just enjoy life while we can, since there's nothing that we can do to, uh, to forestall that doom. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It can also open the door to radicalism. If every institution is in... Um, irrevocable decline, if the society is uh, degenerating fast and on the uh, verge of collapse, 
Well, that opens up calls to smash the machine, drain the swamp, burn the empire to the ground under the uh, expectation that uh, anything rising out of the ashes has got to be better than what we have today, or to empower an aspiring demagogue who promises only I can fix it. <laughs> Is progress inevitable? Well, of course not. Uh, progress does not mean that everything gets better for everyone, everywhere, all the time. That would be magic, not progress. <laughs> progress consists of using knowledge to solve problems, and problems are inevitable. Solutions create new problems which have to be solved in their turn. Also, the world can always be blindsided by nasty surprises, and I've mentioned a number of them. The World Wars, the 1960s crime boom, AIDS in Africa, the American opioid epidemic. And there are severe global challenges that we uh, have not solved, foremost among them being climate change and the risk of nuclear war. I think it is best to see these uh, not as apocalypses in waiting, but as uh, solvable but as yet unsolved problems. Uh, we can address climate change by uh, attempts to decarbonize our uh, economy via carbon pricing and low, zero, and negative carbon technologies and to pursue denuclearization via international stability, which would make nuclear weapons um, uh, um, unneeded, obsolete, anachronistic, and programs of arms reduction. Just a couple of hints that these are not um, vain utopian hopes is the fact that in some ways they have uh, already begun. There's a natural arc in modern economies toward uh, emitting less CO2 per dollar of uh, GDP. Uh, here we have a graph for the UK showing that as the UK um, underwent the Industrial Revolution, it emitted far more CO2 uh, as large amounts of coal were burned to power the Industrial Revolution. But then there was a transition from coal to oil, from oil to natural gas, uh, from, uh, and then to renewables and uh, nuclear energy and hydro, which has resulted in less CO2 being emitted per uh, unit of wealth. The US underwent the same uh, transition. China did, with huge spikes from the uh, Maoist era, where people were forced to set up backyard smelters that emitted vast amounts of CO2 with zero economic output, um, and, uh, but, but it has started to come down, as it has for India and the world as a whole. Now, I have to emphasize, this does not mean that the climate will have a so soft landing. Those figures have to go down to zero, which is um, an extraordinary challenge, but it shows that economies are not inherently tied to flaming carbon. Um, the major fact about nuclear weapons is that uh, no nuclear weapon has been used in war since Nagasaki more than 70 years ago, and there is a um, something like a uh, taboo against the use of nuclear weapons, even um, at least so far, including um, uh, tactical nuclear weapons. And there's been a, a massive reduction in the size of the world's arsenal, at least uh, so far, an 85% reduction since the height of the Cold War in the 1980s. Indeed, about 10% of American electricity is generated from um, fuel, nuclear fuel from uh, spent nuclear weapons, um, in, uh, mainly Soviet. More generally, progress is not a mystical force, but it depends on embracing the ideals of the Enlightenment, namely applying reason and science to enhance human flourishing. If we continue 
to uh, apply these principles, then progress could continue. And if we don't, uh, it may not. Final question. Does the Enlightenment go against human nature, as uh, some uh, romantics and defenders of religion insist? Is humanism just too arid or tepid or flattened to satisfy human needs? Is the conquest of disease, famine, poverty, violence, and ignorance boring? <laughs> Do people need to believe in miracles, a father in the sky, a strong chief to protect the tribe, myths of heroic ancestors? Well, it's not so clear. Um, Secular liberal democracies turn out to be the happiest and healthiest places on Earth, probably in the history of our species, and they are the top destination of people who vote with their feet. Also, I, I dare say that applying knowledge and sympathy to enhance human flourishing is heroic, glorious, maybe even spiritual. This is a, a heroic story that is not just a myth, um, it is true, or true to the best of our knowledge, which is the only truth we can have. Also, it is a heroic story that doesn't belong to one tribe, but to all of humanity, to, to any uh, sentient being with the power of reason and the uh, uh, drive to persist in its being. Because it depends only on the convictions that life is better than death, health is better than sickness, abundance is better than want, freedom is better than coercion, happiness is better than suffering, and knowledge is better than superstition and ignorance. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you. My first uh, note says, remember to mention post-show book sales. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Out there. <clears throat> you haven't mentioned Trump except by uh, sort of inference. But since I, he has mentioned your book quite a lot. And you seem to be saying that one of the ways these various success curves can be reversed is the policies of the current administration. You want to spell that out a bit? Yes. Uh, well, I uh, uh, faced a challenge in mm -hmm. writing a book on progress that mm -hmm. came out in, uh, after 2016, shortly after 2016. <laughs> it doesn't look like so much progress. And I got, I got conflicting advice. Some people said, oh, he's just a blip, progress is going to continue, you want your book to be relevant uh, long after he's left the stage, um, don't mention him. Um, your other said, well, you should, after every measure of progress that you document, you should say, but this is threatened if Donald Trump gets his way. <laughs> so uh, I, uh, I, I didn't follow uh, either bit of advice, but I, I did try to put the um, Trumpism in uh, perspective in, in a couple of ways. One is, uh, first of all, uh, it is uh, undoubtedly true that all of, almost all of the measures that I um, attributed progress to are really under threat from, from Trump's policies. Mm -hmm. uh, the international community of um, both of commercial connections through trade and um, strong international norms and uh, associations like, like, like the UN, um, like the ability to impose sanctions to countries that violate the taboo against conquest um, are, are threatened. The uh, regulations that have made uh, technology safer, that have allowed environmental uh, protection to, the environment to be 
protected as the economy has uh, grown. A uh, reliance on science and evidence, both as a way to expand, extend the human life span, and to uh, implement policies like crime reduction that are driven by uh, evidence. I mean, I could go on. They really are threatened. It isn't just the um, standard liberals um, uh, discussed with Donald Trump. Uh, I pinpoint why each one of these causes of progress really, really has been threatened. So the question is, is um, for one thing, does that mean that Trumpism and authoritarian populism more generally are the wave of, wave of the future. Mm. So have we, was progress nice while it lasted, but the enlightenment is over and uh, the clock's gonna be turned back? Well, I mean, you know, no, one, no one knows. But there are some reasons to, uh, to think uh, not, that it's a little premature to declare the enlightenment dead. Mm -hmm. um, among them are that a lot of these, these uh, processes are trends that have uh, been in, in uh, progress for, for decades, and it seems unlikely that they will suddenly do a U-turn, for what that's worth, mm -hmm. um, including just the uh, political uh, and, and uh, sentiments toward liberalism. One uh, graph that I chose not to show tonight it comes from the World Values Survey, and it looks at attitudes of tolerance, uh, women's rights, um, uh, politi democratic political par participation, and in every region of the world, they've been going up since 1960. Uh, so that's uh, more, than, more than 50 years. Big differences across regions, but uh, with the Middle East and North Africa, the world's uh, least liberal region, and Western mm -hmm. Europe most, but there has been a steady increase in every region of the world. This is uh, driven by urbanization, by education, by uh, uh, connectivity. Uh, forces that are themselves not likely to stop overnight. Mm -hmm. um, also, if you look at the age distribution of support for populism, I have a graph that shows the um, degree of support for Donald Trump in 2016, Brexit in 2016, and European populist parties over the last 15 years, and they all kind of fall off a cliff as a function of age. Um, now, people, contrary to the old uh, cliche that... Um, if you're not a liberal when you're 20, you have no uh, heart. If you are a liberal when you're 60, you have no head, um, attributed to many people. That, that turns out to be false. Mm -hmm. People basically carry their liberalism with them as they age, which suggests that populism is something of a middle age and old man's movement, and uh, the demographics are likely to push against it. So a related demographic question is uh, immigration is a big event, <clears throat> especially in Europe and North America. Are immigrants more liberal or what? Uh, it depends a lot on the immigrants. And, mm -hmm. and in fact, some of the rise of populism is due not to, I, I think, a retreat from Enlightenment values, but to the specific uh, incident of uh, huge waves of immigration from parts of the world that are the, the least liberal, mm -hmm. uh, Middle East and North Africa, uh, often not assimilating quickly and bringing a lot of um, uh, counter-enlightenment values mm -hmm. with them, such as religious fundamentalism and uh, mm -hmm. oppression of women. And there has been a backlash against that uh, massive immigration that has um, uh, empowered some of the right-wing mm -hmm. populists in, in Europe. Um, the, other, the other thing I do in, in uh, dealing with um, populism and, and Trumpism is to note that this is um, actually not the first time that enlightenment values have been um, resisted, uh, even though it, it sounds like an oxymoron to talk about the intellectual roots of Trumpism. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and, and at, at first I thought that, uh, that, that uh, Trumpism was just kind of pure id, just 
streaks of human nature mm -hmm. uh, from of, of uh, authoritarianism, tribalism, demonization that you know always push back against uh, mm -hmm. enlightenment. And I think there is something to that. Mm -hmm. I think the enlightenment is not so cognitively natural. Mm -hmm. Tribalism really is uh, a, a, a recurring uh, motive. But there actually is. Uh, Trump was advised by people like. Steve Bannon, Michael Anton, Steve Miller, who ex consider themselves intellectuals. Mm -hmm. They are, uh, consider themselves well-read. And they were influenced by counter-enlightenment uh, uh, political thinkers and philosophers, by crackpot French and Italian fascists from the 1910s and the 1920s, from uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a rabidly counter-enlightenment figure. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, pretty soon after the Enlightenment unfolded, there was a resistance movement, a kind of romantic counter-Enlightenment, nationalist, mm -hmm. tribalist, blood and soil, mm -hmm. um, uh, devaluing the individual <coughs> in favor of the, uh, the culture, the tribe, the land, the bloodline. Mm -hmm. And uh, it gained ascendance in various times of European history, especially in, in um, Central Europe around the time of World War I and World War II. It was in abeyance after World War II, because the world sort of saw what, what it leads to. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but, but it does tend to bubble up, and that's what we've been seeing, uh, I think, with, uh, with authoritarian populism. A couple questions about the research that uh, what we just saw reflects. Craig asks, how do you perform your research to ensure the statistics you use aren't affected by an implicit bias toward data that shows positive progress? And I would add to that, I can't believe you did all this research. So you know, say a little bit about how you accumulated the, the materials behind these graphs, which is you know, the yeah, real um, meat of what you have here. Um, from, from various places, I was assisted greatly by um, uh, a couple of new websites that have popped up that are kind of data aggregators. Um, mm -hmm. Max Roser's website, Our World in Data, mm -hmm. a stupendous uh, uh, source of, of data because not only are there graphs, but you can download them and link to the uh, orig original source of each one. Mm -hmm. of, often United Nations organizations, the Food and Agricultural Organization, mm -hmm. the World Health Organization, the World Bank. Mm -hmm. um, there's another one by Marian Tupi called humanprogress.org. There's um, uh, Hans and Ola Rosling's website, Gapminder. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a kind of portal into some of the mm -hmm. standard data sets. And others um, I've, I found from various sources by um, often, if I, I read a large number of books by experts in the particular mm -hmm. domains and mm -hmm. would go to their references and follow mm -hmm. up on, on their um, data sets. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't think any of the, um, any of the sources that I cite are particularly controversial in terms of their, their direction. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, you could quibble about exact values, but, um, but I, I would be surprised if any of them uh, were, were uh, not the consensus of the academic experts in each field. So I think it's pretty well uh, established among historical criminologists, for example, mm -hmm. that there's been a, a massive reduction in homicide since the Middle Ages. So I think Craig's, all the Craig's question is sort of how do you defeat your own confirmation bias? Well, if, uh, by, by looking at curves that go in the wrong direction, like the mm -hmm. opioid epidemic, mm -hmm. um, like the um, great American crime boom, in the, well, not just American, Western crime boom in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, if that graph stayed high, that mm -hmm. would be a, a counterexample to progress in that domain. Mm -hmm. uh, in, um, if, if the graph for deaths in wars was you know, World War I, and then World War II, and then World War III, 
uh, you know, that would be a disconfirmation. So anything could be disconfirmed. That's, that's easy. The fact is the graphs do go down like that. Uh, I should think most be actually, if I were you, I'd be welcoming anything that is sort of counter to these trends because they're so continuous and wide and gross and so on, then you know, anything that goes against it, you sort of need it in order to add some kind of plausibility to your well, story. Well, no, that's true. And another, another example, for those who are kind of eagle-eyed, um, mm -hmm. very, very quick <laughs> graph uh, uh, spotters, may have seen a number of reversals, such as the fact that the American homicide rate, which fell pretty steadily from mm -hmm. 1992 to 2014, uh, w uh, went up in 2015 and 2016. I mean, not didn't undo the decline, mm -hmm. but wiped out about nine years of progress. And the um, Syrian civil war mm -hmm. um, represents a, uh, a reversal. It, the, the, the peak was probably the year before last, let's hope. Mm. But that was a, a went in the wrong direction. In fact, in the book, I have, for the graphs for violence, um, I uh, put a little arrow pointing to the last year of data plotted in um, my previous book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, mm -hmm. to address the question, well, did you maybe catch the world at a lucky uh, moment, and has it all fallen apart since then? And in a couple of cases, like the, uh, the uptick in American homicide, it, it has gone in the other direction. Mm -hmm. um, the Syrian civil war, again, was a, a blip up from the low from 2010. Mm -hmm. um, so the, you know, the, the graphs could go any which way. And you're right, they, it, it would be, if they all just went monotonically downward, <laughs> then you would mistrust things. Positively creepy. Kai, from the uh, United Nations Innovation Lab asks, where does female empowerment and leadership fit into this new era of enlightenment? Yeah, it's, it's actually a theme that I, I um, explored more in The Better Angels of Our Nature than, than in mm. this book. Just hmm. um, the, the question that people often ask about violence is, as uh, women are more empowered, would you expect r rates of violence to go down? The answer is probably yes. Mm -hmm. um, and in the case, in the broader case of human flourishing, um, I, I didn't comment on this, but it, it does seem that there is a, in the switch from, say, martial values, tribalism, national glory, to humanism, you could say this is a kind of feminization of morality, that uh, a world in which uh, it's safe to bring up children who, mm -hmm. you know, who grow up, who get an education, who mm -hmm. uh, don't die of disease, who don't starve to death, as opposed to the glory of the nation. Mm -hmm. uh, you could say that that's a shift from, from kind of prototypically masculine to more feminine values. And it may not be a coincidence that many of these changes have been uh, coincident with the uh, rising empowerment of women since uh, since the 1970s. How's that going in your world of academia, which is famously uh, slow to uh, yeah. feminize? Um, well, it's uh, um, actually it hasn't been slow to feminize. I mean, there are some. They're in the students, but how about in the power structure? Um, well, not depends on the discipline. I'm, okay. I come from. Well, a, say more. I, I'm a psychologist. Uh, our our discipline mm -hmm. is uh, is doing pretty well for gender parity. In fact, my main area of specialization was language development in children, which was majority uh, female. Mm -hmm. um, psychology is one of the more closer to, closer to gender parity, not exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, uh, depending on the discipline, there's a, a enormous differences in the per percentage of uh, scientists who are female. Okay. Ah, here's a live stream question from my friend Hugh Howie. Live stream, I recommend to folks. I uh, just started trying it myself and on live stream you see the slides better than you see it in the theater. And 
questions come to the stage. So Hugh Howie asks, uh, how does the balance of knowledge that things are getting better and the passion required to continue the trends uh, blend? How do we manage to make it easier for people to be rational pessimists and optimistic activists? Is, rational uh, pessimists and optimistic you know, people activists. People sort of sit back and say things are going to be okay. Whew. I'm yeah. going to go uh, golf. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's happened. In fact, I'm doing, um, planning to do experiments with a student of mine, Jason Nemero, to, uh, to see whether narratives of uh, decline and degeneration or narratives of uh, conditional uh, progress mm -hmm. are more likely to empower people to donate effectively to charity, to um, uh, not to discount the future as much. So we don't know for sure. My, uh, my hunch is that there is uh, an optimal amount of pessimism and that many people are um, more pessimistic than the optimum. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if this is true. It's, it's an empirical question. I just know, in, uh, so you should never do this, but of course we all do, just from my own experience. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel I've been more of a, um, a donor to charities, more of a, an activist, more uh, spoken out more, since I've seen all of the ways in which um, humanity has, has increased. It's uh, human uh, activity can pay off in things actually getting better. It's not just feeling good, it's not just conspicuous mm. virtue sig signaling, um, but trying to make the world better makes the world better. And, so and you, I, I appreciate that more. Have you yourself, over the course of these last couple kinds of research books, shifted your own personal relationship to the world from a less pessimistic to a more optimistic? Absolutely. And in fact, there's a, there's a paper trail, because in 2002, <laughs> I wrote a book called The Blank Slate on the Modern Denial of Human right. Nature. And a belief in, in human nature has tended to uh, militate toward a kind of tragic view of the human condition. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not angels, we can never have a utopia. Um, on the other hand, as a cognitive psychologist, my mm -hmm. view of human nature always accommodated a uh, system of our brain that can creatively combine uh, new ideas. Mm -hmm. As someone who studies language, I know that we can share our hard-won wisdom through, mm -hmm. through words. And so there is scope for human improvement, even with a belief in human nature. Uh, namely, we come up with new ideas, we try them, we share them, we keep the ones that work. Um, but I think since between writing The Blank Slate, mm -hmm. Defending Human Nature and The Better Angels of Our Nature, which was inspired by stumbling across graphs showing declines of, in violence, mm -hmm. I've become more um, optimistic mm -hmm. based on the data and more, um, and I think more engaged in, in effective altruism and advocacy of uh, positive change. Well, effectiveness is an interesting measure. You know, if, if you looked at activists across the board and uh, were sort of evaluating their effectiveness as, as, as activists in the domain that they care about and then measured their effectiveness as activists in that domain against their pessimism or optimism, is anybody looking to see what makes an effective activist and is this part of that story? Uh, that I would love to know the answer. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I suspect that... Uh, that effective uh, activists are do have some enough, at least enough optimism, enough animal spirits, as Keynes put it, to take the risks under uncertainty, uh, mm -hmm. to make the personal sacrifices under some reasonable expectation that they'll return uh, benefits to human welfare. Again, this is speculation. I think it's uh, something that should be studied. I have a question in the language here. That you're this language guy. You know, we call it optimism. 
and pessimism, and one was an optimist or pessimist. It's sort of like a communist and communism. <laughs> Is this a belief structure we're talking about, or what? Yes. Uh, well, it, it, uh, this goes back to a belief in human nature. I, I'm virtually certain that a big chunk of differences among people in level of optimism versus pessimism is heritable, mm -hmm. uh, just because everything is, is partly heritable. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and there are certain personality traits that would tend to correlate with optimism, pessimism that we know are, are heritable, such as neuroticism, which is a degree of uh, worry they and correlate. anxiety. So who's more yeah. neurotic? Oh, the pessimists, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but... Um, you know, optimism, the, the term optimism, I think it actually does go back to the era of Leibniz and Voltaire. And mm -hmm. an optimist was someone who believed that this is the best of all possible worlds, namely, this is the optimum. Mm -hmm. And ironically enough, Voltaire was actually not satirizing what I we never got that optimism is optimal. optimum, duh. Yes. Okay. Which actually is not the way we, not the way we use the word now, because yeah. as, I, as I mentioned, if you're really an optimist, you don't think that this is the optimum. Huh. You know, heaven forbid. So what uh, is pessimism? I don't know where pessimism, pessimism comes okay, from. We'll find out. But in any case, Voltaire wasn't even satirizing hopes for a better future. I mean, he was an Enlightenment figure. He was satirizing almost the opposite, Leibniz's mm. theodicy, according to which we have no choice but to accept the evil and violence and suffering and early death in the world because it's metaphysically impossible for the world to be any better than it is. Because if it, if it could be better, God would have made it better. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we have, we're stuck with, it's impossible for the world to be better. That's what Leibniz had in, in mind, um, and that's what Voltaire was satirizing. Speaking of that, there's a question Sorry. from a person named Anonymous. Who says, is there, asks, is there a religious component from monotheism which helped or be considered helping modern enlightenment in science and quality of life? Or um, not? Well, the, certainly the enlightenment thinkers themselves were, um, uh, even though they, many of them were not uh, atheists, some of them were deists. They mm -hmm. believed that God kind of wound up the clock of the universe, set it in motion, and then let it kind of unwind by itself without any intervention. None of them really appealed to Judeo-Christian doctrine to justify mm -hmm. uh, uh, much of anything. So mm -hmm. they, in fact, often the Enlightenment is almost defined as a uh, abandonment of justification by scripture, dogma, tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there is a notion of progress in among religious thinkers that may have influenced the Enlightenment, the idea that there has been progress from, at least among Christian thinkers, from the ancient Hebrews to the Jesus to the early church, uh, to the, if you're Protestant, mm -hmm. to the Reformation. So there is that notion, that at least concept of progress. Um, but it's uh, well. These churches were an institution. Are they an institution in the Enlightenment sense that you've been talking about as a sort of an ameliorator of a lot of the fragmented, feudal-like uh, killing and all the rest? Well, of it? well, some of them, especially the, the Catholic Church, fought mm -hmm. the Enlightenment uh, tooth and nail. Mm -hmm. uh, Joseph de Maistre, uh, for example, was uh, um, argued against the abolition of uh, torture mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, grisly torture executions because um, people will just run wild with licentiousness if they don't have the fear of being tortured to death. Uh, he was against reading of novels because then people would start to get ideas about nonconformity. Uh, so certainly the, the Catholic Church was dead set again. And actually, mm -hmm. in many ways, continues to be. And that mm -hmm. many of our, um, uh, much of the, what you might think of as um, 
sort of strange opposition to enlightenment, including mm. some of the negative reviews of enlightenment now, come from prom cap prominent intellectuals who would be the first to note that they are influenced by Catholicism, mm. such as Andrew Sullivan, such as Ross Duthat. And there's been a, a queasiness among um, many Catholic thinkers to uh, Steve Bannon, another mm. uh, 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 Catholic thinker, mm. to the idea that, uh, <laughs> Uh, and again, he's, um, he makes no bones about it. He's, he, mm -hmm. he addressed the Vatican, and one of his most famous speeches uh, was uh, delivered there. Um, the idea that uh, the individual human is the, both the locus of um, moral um, value, valuation, that what's mm -hmm. important is how happy each one of us is, mm -hmm. that, it, that human reason is the source of moral doctrine as opposed to um, something that is bigger than any of us, namely the church and, mm -hmm. and the, the church tradition, that f the freedom and individual self-determination have just led to uh, licentiousness, to pornography and abortion mm -hmm. and uh, divorce. Um, so there has been a, a, a tension between mm -hmm. enlightenment and um, at least some religious uh, uh, traditions. Um, others, though, have been influenced by the enlightenment and many de religious denominations have become more humanistic, more liberal. Uh, Quakerism was in some ways ahead of the curve because mm. they were both abolitionists and pacifists mm -hmm. in an era where not all Enlightenment thinkers were, mm -hmm. and certainly most other religious denominations were not. And other denominations, uh, mainstream Protestantism, uh, the more liberal branches of Judaism, have, mm -hmm. I think, been affected by the Enlightenment tide and have uh, backtracked from the Iron Age morality, from the theological doctrines, and have become uh, kind of institutions of humanism themselves. You're among the sort of public, somewhat aggressive atheists. Um, is that correct? I, to say? I, don't, I don't think I'm aggressive. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm clear. Uh, I mean, I, I have the statement, um, there's no evidence that God exists. Mm -hmm. And I think, that, I think that's a true statement. I don't okay. think it's aggressive. Mm -hmm. It's perceived as aggressive, I think precisely because uh, it is only by faith, tribe, community, bloodline, that you have mm -hmm. beliefs, almost by definition, that are based on faith. Mm -hmm. And so if you simply put those beliefs under a rational microscope, it mm -hmm. sounds like you're attacking the people who acquired those beliefs because of the community that they were born into. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think the perception of aggression comes from, yeah. even though it's just a hypothesis, and you know, why, why can't I say there's no evidence if there's no evidence? So how's atheism doing on one of your charts? Is it up, down? Or? Well, there's, there, there are two different trends. Um, <laughs> as a, by the way, and I have to uh, quote here Bertrand Russell, who's, uh, when he was challenged on the, by some vicar on the BBC, like, what, what, what will you say if after you die, you find yourself staring the Almighty in the face? <laughs> what will, and he said, oh Lord, why did you not give me more evidence? <laughs> 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 but back, back to your question. And the Lord um, says, what part of the word faith do you not understand? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be another way of putting it. So there are, there are two trends that are going in opposite directions. One of them is that when people shift their religious belief, um, it is in the direction of losing their religion. Uh, the fastest growing uh, religion in terms of converts is no religion at all. Um, however, religious people have more babies. Um, so the number of people 
uh, that, are, that are in uh, communities of faith is increasing, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. though the number of people who become religious uh, is decreasing. The other uh, trend that I, makes us overestimate the, uh, the, the influence of, of religion, why many people believe that um, despite Enlightenment hopes, people are getting, uh, that religion is playing a larger and larger role, mm -hmm. um, aside from just sheer fecundity, uh, which itself may change in the future as, uh, because a lot of the trends that have reduced religiosity, um, hmm. like uh, urbanization, like, mm -hmm. uh, like education, like affluence, uh, as those continue, uh, they also affect fertility. Mm -hmm. And so it could be that the trend toward uh, the demographic transition to lower fertility may also involve secularization. But um, the other, I, I think, distorter of our perception of the role of religion is that, that um, uh, religious people vote. Um, and, uh, Ooh, the, okay. uh, and, and a lot of secular people do not. Why do religious people vote? Um, partly their, their, their clergy tell them to. Um, it may also be, I mean, that may be one reason. And so, in fact, in the 2016 election, I think the voting rate among evangelical Christians was in the ballpark of 80%. Hmm. The uh, voting rate among so-called nuns, N-O-N-E, not, not, not the, the latest hats, <laughs> not nuns, uh, was more like 25%. Now, partly this is age. Hmm. Uh, there's a, a hmm. pretty big cohort effect for religiosity. The younger hmm. the group, the less religious. But there, it may also be that whatever social, cultural, personality type allows you to affiliate with any institution, mm -hmm. uh, makes you more engaged in the political process, mm. and that some of the nuns aren't so much kind of students of Bertrand Russell who've figured it all out, but they just kind of withdraw from all institutions, mm -hmm. from churches, but also from the political process. Okay. Um, here's the internet question. Um, social media question. Justin asks, how do you feel about communication over the internet has affected our ability uh, to have uh, discourses and advancement. And where does it fit into the story, do you think? Yeah, so that's the, uh, I mean, so nowadays, everything that goes wrong is blamed on social media. Right, right. And, you know, maybe some of the things that, that have gone wrong are a fault of social media, and some surely are. Um, I, I don't really know that I think it's too... Uh, and by that I mean, I mean who cares what, what I know, but I think it's, it is not known mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that it's so new that I don't think there's a good body of literature on uh, how much social media has driven the polarization that we have seen. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it has been driven by cable news, and there we do know that it has an effect, mm -hmm. just by the natural experiment that cable companies um, offer different uh, menus of stations, Mm -hmm. And uh, Fox News in particular uh, is sometimes introduced to one town before it's introduced to another town. And so for social scientists, it's, yes, an independent variable, yeah, yeah, yeah. an experiment of nature. Uh, and what happens is there is absolutely an effect of Fox News on uh, voting and political opinions. When Fox News is introduced to a town, the citizens uh, move to the right. Um, and so that's not social media, but that mm -hmm. is an effect. There's also a big effect, and I, again, I don't know if, if we have the social science data to disentangle them, but segregation by education, um, and uh, that more highly educated people tend to live with one another more. Mm -hmm. um, there are patterns across urban areas versus suburbs. And here I am saying this in San Francisco. It's kind of bloody obvious. Um, and that the like-minded communities may 
be driven by physical proximity and by occupational segregation, mm -hmm. uh, as far as you know, as much as by social media uh, filter bubbles. Um, there's a couple of where should we go from here questions. Alexander Rose asks, what trends or data give you the most concern? And Emily asks, uh, where should we focus our efforts for progress in the future, in your opinion? Yeah. Um, well, uh, in, and those in, may be separate questions. They may be related. They might be related. The yeah. Which, where should we focus? Well, the um, certainly in terms of actual um, physical threats, I'm, I'm concerned about climate change. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I assume you are too, but maybe not not as much as me, or more, or but. Well, I don't know how I'll, much you I'll, are, so I'll, I'll, I'll put. I'll take you <laughs> off guard. Right. Uh, I'm concerned about climate change. Uh -huh. uh, I am concerned about the low probability, high damage uh, scenario of, of a nuclear war. Um, mm, interesting. Okay. Still, okay. Uh, not because I think it's particularly likely, but just mm. because it's. Um, if it does happen, it's. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it can be. A lot of people can be killed very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, in the world of ideas, I am concerned about um, the rise of authoritarian populism. Mm -hmm. um, I, as I said, I think there are demographic and um, uh, trends that are probably will prevent it from taking over, but mm -hmm. in the meantime, it, it certainly has gained control of a number of countries. I'm concerned about um, impediments to economic growth. If, the, um, if there are um, structural uh, breaks on growth like debt, like mm -hmm. uh, an expanding retired population supported by a shrinking working population. Hmm. Um, Japan, we're talking uh, about. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and, one thing that surprised me as I wrote the, the book is how many good things come from uh, economic growth. I mentioned happiness as one, but <laughs> the Flynn effect of rising IQ scores is um, affected by how, how wealthy a country is. Liberal values, richer countries in general are, are more uh, tolerant, more progressive, more liberal. At least if the source of their wealth comes from knowledge mm -hmm. and commerce as opposed to digging stuff out of the ground. Mm -hmm. Because there are a number of extraction states, particularly in the Middle East, mm -hmm. uh, Arab oil states, that are very rich and very reactionary. Mm -hmm. But uh, putting aside them, in general, wealth buys um, mm -hmm. uh, liberalism, it buys intelligence, it buys happiness. Um, it, it buys peace, it buys democracy, on average. Mm -hmm. um, so if economic growth were to plateau, then a lot, there'd be a lot of negative consequences. So that, that's something I, I think about. So one question, enlightenment now, new enlightenment. Uh, that was then, this is now. Uh, you're talking about the values which were established then and that are still valid to push forward. What's different? Uh, 200 years is a long time. A whole hell of a lot has gone on. And then we're still even evoking something that was basically invented over 200 years ago. Is itself strange and amazing, but okay, we'll go, we'll go with that. What is an enlightenment now made of? Uh, is, are we just seeing this is the enlightenment playing out quietly behind the scenes, making all these graphs go forward? Uh, is there something extra special that these questions are raising that, that we might be doing now so that we are the Voltaires and Diderots and so on of our time? Uh, what are we talking about now in terms of enlightenment? Well, now we, we certainly are talking about um, uh, limiting the resurgence of uh, tribalism, nationalism, racialism. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that you know, in general, although I don't think that 
religion is necessarily incompatible with enlightenment values because mm -hmm. religions become more enlightened. But certainly fundamentalist beliefs, getting your morality uh, mm -hmm. from scripture, getting your theory of causation from scripture. Mm -hmm. So you're know, using prayer or faith as a solution to problems, I think is prob highly problematic. Mm -hmm. I'll be concrete. There is belief, there, there's a, a huge correlation between um, utter denial of human-made climate change and both right-left politics, hmm. um, much uh, greater correla correlation than scientific literacy. In fact, the correlation with scientific literacy is probably zero. The correlation with where you are on the right-left scale is um, very, very high, you know, 0.8 or something, or 0.9. Um, and there is a correlation with, with um, religiosity. So there was a movement in the hmm. 1990s and early, and first few years of the 21st century toward um, sometimes called uh, um, uh, stewardship of the uh, environment, uh, mm. kind of confluence of the religious with the environmental movement. Um, I think it was called what, creation environmentalism. It went by a number of names. Mm -hmm. It was completely dashed uh, when Obama became president and the uh, Republican Party vowed a principle of absolute non-cooperation with anything the Obama administration proposed. Mm -hmm. And of course, evangelical Christians were um, locked up by the Republican Party. And mm -hmm. so the, the dream, E.O. Wilson had a, a whole book where he had a letter to a mm -hmm. hypothetical minister of how they could find common cause in protecting God's gift of the environment. Forget about it. Mm -hmm. uh, there was just the evangelicals became implacably opposed to any measures to address uh, carbon emissions or, or environmental protection. Hmm. And part of it was polls show that a, a, a large percentage of them believe God wouldn't let, let any bad thing happen. God wouldn't let there be climate catastrophes. So this is a case in which a uh, counter-enlightened belief, enlightenment hmm. belief could have real uh, pernicious consequences. Okay, and so in a sense you're using concern about climate as a sort of measure of enlightenment, uh, enlightenment actually, in people, in the enlightened ones I mean, paying it'd be, attention. It'd be, that would be one, one example. But, but it um, also sounds like, since you're talking the outliers of this political spectrum, that if there were less outliers and more folks sort of arguing agreeably with each other, uh, rather than totally not listening, that that somehow would move in the right direction. I would um, so hard yeah, I right, would hard left, or both problems. Um, I, I would, I think so. Yeah. Mm. Um, the um, just from now, uh, just from research that shows that uh, when people are committed to a political ideology, mm -hmm. they are demonstrably less rational. Um, this has been shown by um, in a number of ways by um, Philip Tetlock, who mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. has spoken in this series, who's shown right. that if you look Twice. at how accurately people predict the future. I mean, you know, not kind of seeing into uh, the next century, but just uh, hold their feet to the fire, make concrete predictions about what's going to happen in the next six months to a year. Mm -hmm. The political ideolo ideologues do much worse mm -hmm. than the, uh, the kind of the Bayesian nerds, mm -hmm. the ones who uh, try to assess a base rate probability and tweak it up or down by the evidence. And another example is the work of the Yale legal scholar Daniel Kahan, who uh, did a famous experiment. It was reported in uh, a number of newspapers as uh, how, why politics makes us stupid or uh, politics uh, interferes with, uh, with your, your ability to do math, that presenting data mm -hmm. to people um, from a hypothetical study 
mm -hmm. uh, where the data were jiggered so that there was a, a kind of gut feeling as to what they implied, whether A caused B, that was wrong. That is, if you looked at the raw numbers, it would mm -hmm. seem that A caused B, but if you take a second and just do the proportions, mm -hmm. then you realize it's the other way around. So it's you know, deliberately a, a little bit of a trick question, so it required a bit of reflection. If, you, if it's a non-political issue, does this skin cream uh, uh, successfully treat a rash, then the more uh, numerate you are, the uh, less likely you are to be seduced by the wrong answer, both if you're a liberal or a conservative. Mm -hmm. But as soon as the issue becomes politicized, namely, does a concealed carry law increase or reduce the crime rate? Same numbers. Then it turns out that the more numerate liberals and conservatives did worse uh, when the data went against their preferred uh, hypothesis. Mm -hmm. um, and so politics makes us stupid. Uh, and that, that's the basis of my expectation, that less polarization would lead to more optimal policies. And how's that playing out in academia? I know you've invaded a bit yes. against uh, over-politicization of who can speak on campus and so on. I, I, I think it has distorted certain issues in, in academia. That was one theme of my book, The Blank Slate, that, mm. uh, that a lot of issues in psychology, I think, had been distorted by the fact that um, certain answers were deemed politically more acceptable, and there was a, a kind of blinkers um, toward data that, uh, that contradicted it. That was a theme that was then taken up by, um, by Phil Tetlock again and John Haidt and uh, Jose you Duarte. You guys are sort of group of what are seen as conservative public intellectual academics. Uh, you well, conservative in the sense, from the perspective of what I call... Not insanely liberal? What are we talking about? Eh? Well, uh, <laughs> I refer to the, uh, the hypothetical location called the left pole. Mm -hmm. So when you're, you know when you're at the North Pole, all directions are south. Mm -hmm. When you're at the left pole, all directions are, are right. Okay. So, <laughs> so from the, the left pole in academia, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, by that standard, uh, I, may, I might be called a conservative, but mm -hmm. I'm a very peculiar conservative. I'm one of the biggest donors among the Harvard faculty to the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I voted for Hillary. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really by, all, uh, by no stretch of the imagination a conservative, except by this peculiar uh, perspective of the left pole. Is that getting better on campus or worse, by the way? It's uh, getting worse. Um, uh, that um, many, uh, that the point of the um, Tetlock, Height, Duarte, uh, Stern article was that um, the kind of diversity that really um, advances uh, uh, intellectual understanding and, and policy is diversity of viewpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has been decreasing even in an era in which diversity is celebrated. Mm -hmm. As uh, the civil liberties lawyer Harvey Silverglate put it, in modern universities, the meaning of diversity is people who look different but think alike. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, so what... Uh, um, the Heterodox Academy, which I'm, I'm affiliated with, and, and uh, John Haidt and others have uh, advocated, is um, science will advance if we have a diversity of viewpoints, simply because no one is omniscient, no one is uh, infallible. Mm -hmm. um, science progresses when hypotheses are floated, the, the incorrect ones are, are refuted by data. Mm -hmm. And if we only try hypotheses from a narrow um, a slice of the spectrum of possibilities, we're probably going to be wrong a lot of the time. Okay. I think I'll end with um, a nice general question from Neil Goldberg. How do you relate contemporary China, which has made huge progress along all these measures, 
and you would not exactly describe it as an enlightenment uh, society. So what's going no, on? No, it's a, it's a uh, yeah, a, a question. I don't, I don't know the answer, but it is mm -hmm. a, I think it is a profound question. Certainly, China, as repressive as it is, mm -hmm. um, and even more so with the announcement a, a few days ago of the uh, uh, removal of term limits for uh, Xi Jinping, mm -hmm. um, it's certainly more... Uh, has greater degree of personal freedom than it did in the uh, mm -hmm. era of Mao. Mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. and some enlightenment institutions like markets uh, mm -hmm. were adopted by China to its enormous benefit in terms mm -hmm. of prosperity, uh, lifespan, and so on. You could on. say probably they were adopting what Lee Kuan Yew had done in, in Singapore. Now, was that an enlightenment to the phenomenon that Lee did there? Um, in, in one way, yes, and in other ways, no. So mm -hmm. yes, in terms of markets, which mm -hmm. was a, a, an enlightenment innovation compared mm -hmm. to royal charters and mercantilism mm -hmm. and beggar-thy-neighbor policies. So openness to trade and to private enterprise was a, mm -hmm. um, certainly an enlightenment uh, institution, but of course not democracy, uh, which another enlightenment mm -hmm. uh, brainchild that was not adopted. So it's, a, it's kind of a hybrid of uh, in, enlightenment and uh, authoritarian um, institutions. How does this all look, really final question, going forward um, 100, 200 years? It's, that's the frame that talking about the Enlightenment sort of raises. You know, here's this set of ideas, set of practices, set of even traditions that have been around for a couple of centuries. Uh, do they own the next couple of centuries? And if that's the case, are we basically just looking at this trend line continuing or what? What, what do you see? in the longer right. time frame here. The, what's the long now of this whole question? Yes, well, uh, I, I might cop out by uh, citing Phil Tetlock, who's spoken mm -hmm. in this series, who found that even his super forecasters, the best of the best predictors, uh, felt a chance five years out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know. I guess, I guess the best I could say is that it's possible that it will continue. I mean, there are huge challenges, climate mm -hmm. being one of them, energy, um, avoidance of the tail risks like, like nuclear war. Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, but on the other hand, the process once set in motion uh, does, barring these potential catastrophes, have the potential to uh, improve indefinitely, even though if it'll never bring us to utopia because of human nature, crooked timber of humanity and all that stuff, mm -hmm. because solutions generate new problems which constantly have to be solved in their turn. But still, um, barring the uh, unlikely but catastrophic events, um, I think it's, it's possible that the pro progress will continue for centuries. So let me leave you with a research question for, I don't know if it's your next book, but whatever. Yeah. That is this, is long-term thinking actually useful or worth anything or anything other than amusing? Yeah. Is there, uh, you know, if you look back in alignment thinkers, were they long-term thinkers? Uh, the founding fathers of the U.S. sort of were because they were actually sort of creating a society, a nation, and so they were talking about And the Constitution reflected their ideas of what should be applicable for generations. So at least yeah. that set, you could probably say long-term thinking was good for them. But across the board, it would be interesting to tease out in the way that you've teased out the, how the Enlightenment values have played out and might play out, is there any goddamn value to long-term thinking? Yeah, yeah oh, yes. I mean, uh, but long-term thinking, I assume, I assume we both agree this doesn't mean um, kind of being a seer and uh, prognosticating what will happen, but rather... Um, Engaging. Maybe, just, just 
taking no, no, responsibility exactly. for rather than trying exactly. to control the long term. Exactly. I mean, the old, just as, yeah, I think it's actually essential to just clar clarify our thinking, mm -hmm. even if it isn't making uh, confident prognostications, but mm -hmm. as a set of what-if scenarios, mm -hmm. absolutely. For the same reason that I don't think you can do history without thinking of counterfactuals, what yes. would have happened if, mm -hmm. just because the notion of cause and effect is inherently tied to counterfactuals mm -hmm. of the past and, then, and also of the future. So I think it's tremendously valuable if it's not confused with prophecy, but it isn't prophecy. It's, it's long-term thinking. Well, we get Neil Ferguson, who does counterfactuals, among other things, as an historian, speaking in the fall, so I'll ask him the same question. Thank you for doing this. Hey, thank you, Steve. Thanks very much. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. You can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.